0: High Heels in Politics with Marianne Christie is a production of ION Community. If you would like to know more about podcasting or if you'd like to create your own, you can contact me, Ryan Kulik. I can be reached at ryan at ioncommunity.com or you can call me directly at 513-600-8077.
1: Welcome to High Heels in Politics with Mary Ann Christie. This is the podcast where current and future leaders discuss the issues facing us in Southwest Ohio and beyond. Here is Mary Ann Christie. High Heels in Politics is fortunate to introduce to you a prominent and accomplished Cincinnati woman, Amy Murray. Amy has worked for a major international Cincinnati company, elected to Cincinnati Council, and in 2020, had a presidential appointment to a major position at the Department of Defense. Murray led a department that had procured $80 billion in Pentagon spending for small businesses across the country. That's about 20% of the procurement done by the Defense Department. Amy, welcome to High Heels and Politics. Your position at the Department of Defense as Director of Small Business was to oversee the role of how small businesses can work with our national defense and benefit these businesses here
0: at home. Please give our listeners an insight in your job. Thank you so much, Marianne, for having me here today. I really appreciate it. So at Department of Defense, it was so interesting because I was coming from Cincinnati City Council. And I started in Department of Defense working in the Pentagon on March 16th, 2020. So literally the very first day of COVID. So I knew what the job was going into it and my team had some planning set up for me, onboarding for two or three weeks when I first started. However, COVID hit immediately. And so for these small businesses, I had to enter that job and we were in crisis mode from day one. We needed to make sure that businesses, small businesses that were essential for the Department of Defense and our national security were able to stay open and keep producing what they needed to. So if you think about it like a Boeing, people know that that's defense essential, but there's thousands of small businesses that are part of that chain that might supply something to Boeing that they need. And we can't take the chance of having them shut down for three, four, five months and slow down the whole operating procedure and operating of the whole supply chain. We can't have the whole supply chain shut down because of COVID, because these were essential things that we need for our war fighters to be able to protect our country. So from day one, we had to go into defensive mode and offensive mode and figure out what to do to keep these small businesses open. One of the things we did early on is we started working with the trade association. So there's many trade associations in the defense area. So we started daily conversations with them. We would have meetings every day to hear what was going on in the field, in all of their different industries, and where people were having issues. And then my office was responsible for setting policy for the Army, Navy, Air Force, Space Force, as far as what we would do with the small businesses. So ways that they could keep coming to business, coming to the office, making sure that the employees could get to the office. So we set up all sorts of different policies so that people could get to work to keep our country safe. Okay, but what about the role of women and minority groups? So we have women and minority numbers that we aim for every year for small business. And we have in every city or most communities something called a PTAC, Procurement Technical Assistance Center. And so I would encourage anyone that's looking into this, whether you're women, minorities, veterans-owned businesses, and they are the ones that are the boots on the ground that can help you know how to work with Department of Defense. And it's called PTAC, Procurement Technical Assistance Center. And if you went to the small business website on DOD, it can give you all of the information on how you can find out more information and be successful working with the DOD. Okay, now you were promoted
1: to an Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Industrial Policies. Can you explain what that meant? And was
0: social media involved with this? So it's interesting because when I was with small business, our webpage for small business initially had about 50,000 views a month. When I started there, because of my experience with social media and running for council, and because of the crisis, within the first month, we upped our social media, our touches on our webpage to over 250,000 a month. So because we wanted to make sure that people could get the information they needed right when they needed it. So with the Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, which is a lot to say, so we call it DASD, D-A-S-D, DASD. So in that role, I had responsibility for small business. And then in addition, I took on responsibility for the Defense Production Act, DPA. So DPA normally during a regular year has about $50 And during COVID, uh, we had a billion dollars to use towards DPA funding. And this is really to help, it can be used in a variety of ways, but to help companies that we need for national security to be able to help us during this crisis. And then the third part, I'm sorry, is called CFIUS, Committee on Foreign Investment Review. And so that is when you have a company that is going to be acquired or merged or doing work with a foreign entity. They have to apply through CFIUS to get approved by the American government. And the different agencies all look at it. So Treasury, Defense, everyone looks at it under their own eyes. In Defense, we obviously look at it, is it a national security concern? One thing that you saw in the news a lot in the last year was TikTok. And that was something that was part of CFIUS. So that would be a good example of how the departments work together when you had a foreign entity that was Take, uh, merging with an American company.
1: You worked for Procter & Gamble in the international market. Was that a great help for you with your job in the Department of Defense?
0: Oh, absolutely. So when I was with Procter & Gamble, I was there almost 15 years in global business development. So I worked with a lot of different countries. I traveled probably 100 days a year to Asia And so when I was doing work in Department of Defense, I had a really good understanding of supply chains, because that's what we did with Procter & Gamble, and with a lot of our foreign partners as far as working with them. So it definitely helped in every aspect. And, you know, P&G is such a good company. It really you get down to that one page memo and, you know, knowing how to communicate effectively.
1: All right. Well, then on top of all this, when you were 16, you chose to go to Japan, Coyote, Japan. So you
0: want to tell us about that and how that helped you? Yes, absolutely. And I'm just such a strong advocate for anyone that can be an exchange student, especially during high school. So my family, I had three sisters, and we had not traveled internationally. That was not part of our family at that time. We were a camping family. But I had always wanted to travel abroad. And I always wanted to be an exchange student. It was just from early on, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And so uh, we started an AFS, American Field Service chapter, at my high school. And I was able to be one of the first students to go to Kyoto, Japan. I went there at age 16. This was before, like, there were a lot of sushi bars and things like that. People didn't know a lot about Japan. And when I went over there, I could speak about five words of Japanese. I studied before I went. And, you know, I just knew maybe a month before where I was going to, I lived with an extended family in Kyoto, Japan, in a house. Our house was 350 years old. I lived with my Japanese mom and dad, a grandma and grandpa, two uncles, a brother and a sister, and a dog named Kuma, and went to a public Japanese high school. So the only foreigner, I could go literally two or three months sometimes and not see another foreigner where I was living.
1: Wow. So how did you how did their high school different from an American high school?
0: Yes, so it's very different. And, And in Japan, you can speak Japanese. But if you don't understand the culture, then you're missing out on a lot. So that was living there a year, you really got to know the culture. But for example, students take a lot of responsibility for their school and classroom So at the end of the day, whichever row you were in in your classroom, you had duties to clean the school. So whether it was sweeping, erasing the chalkboards, dumping trash. So it wasn't maintenance folks that did that. It was students so that they would have responsibility for their school. So that's just one example. Plus, in Japan, we went to school six days a week. So we did half a day on Saturday. And I would get on the bus every day and go to school. And, you know, the first few months, it was hard for me to understand the classes because I didn't speak Japanese, but I would study Japanese during the classes. And within about four or five months, you know, I could understand the basic classes. Of course, Japanese history was always kind of hard, but in math and things like that, I could really follow along.
1: Interesting.
0: And it was a life-changing experience for me. I always say my life at age 16 is before Japan and after Japan, because what I did there at 16 changed my career. It put focus on what I would be doing for the rest of my life.
1: Really interesting. One thing we talked about your presidential appointment. Can you uh, kind of briefly tell us, how do you get a presidential appointment?
0: Sure. So whenever a president comes on, so in January, you have a presidential personnel office, and that's out of the the president's office. And they look at folks that they would be interested in having in the administration. And so people need to get through the presidential personnel office kind of vetting process. You know, you'll hear stories where people with whatever administration are through that process a year, two years, three years. It can take quite a while to get through that process. Sometimes it's quicker. And then all of the agencies have White House liaisons. So like in Department of Defense, there's a White House liaison that works with the Presidential Personnel Office. So when you kind of get the green light through the Presidential Personnel Office, then they start looking at your capabilities, your experience, and what department needs there are, agency needs there are, and where you might be a good fit. So whether it's state or commerce, but it can be a very lengthy process to get through all of this. Okay.
1: In essence, that group made a decision for the Department of Defense because of your background.
0: So yes, the White House liaison in Department of Defense, when they received my resume from the Presidential Personnel Office, said, we have an opening in small business, this would be perfect, because I have that business background, and then also local government.
1: Interesting. And, and,
0: and I have to tell you, for my year working in Department of Defense, I just thank everyone out there that has served our country, that's in the military. It was such an honor. I, I went into the Pentagon almost every day of the year, and it, it's almost like a living museum. Every wall has a different time period in our country's history and the men and women that served. And I would encourage anyone, once things open up, you know, if you're in D.C., definitely do the tour of the Pentagon. Uh, it is really amazing.
1: You also set up your own consulting practice because of your business and you worked with Fortune 500 companies. you want to tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yes. So I felt like I had my dream career at Procter & Gamble. I loved every moment of it, but I was traveling 100 days a year. I got married during that time and then I had two small boys. And so I had to make a decision. Did I want to be traveling 100 days a year? And, you know, for me, I really wanted to be home and be able to be the Boy Scout leader and be with my boys on a daily basis. And so I left Procter & Gamble, and I wanted to stay involved in the business world. So I started my own Japanese consulting company, working with American companies that are doing business in Japan, or with Japanese companies that are here in the US. And so it was great because it kept my foot in the business world. I've always had a passion for Japan since I lived there and i was able to be a hands on mother also so i did a lot of work for companies there's a lot of cultural issues and challenges when working cross culturally with different countries and especially like japan and yeah. so i did a lot of work on those areas with yeah. quite a few fortune 500 companies
1: well you worked in all the many interesting countries such as singapore malaysia thailand and the philippines anything else and did you have any unusual experiences dealing with all these countries?
0: Every day was a learning experience. And I had the experience in the background in Japan. And so that's why I started doing work with other Asian countries, especially for Procter and Gamble. And I had a few really interesting experiences. P&G had bought Max Factor back when I was working for Procter and Gamble. In the U.S., you think of Max Factor Cosmetics as maybe a lipstick brand that's you buy over the counter. It's five dollars. Well, the Max Factor brand in Asia was a very high-end cosmetic company. Lipstick was maybe $80. And we had all of these makeup artists there. And it was a different brand name. And so it was really exciting for me because I worked on the acquisition of Max Factor and figuring out what we do with all of these thousands of makeup artists that all of a sudden we had within our company that we hadn't had experience with before. And then I also had a chance when uh, Sam's Club was opening up in China. I Sam's went
1: Club opened in China, in
0: China, and so I went over there for three wo- weeks and worked on the PNG products and getting the people that would be working at Sam's Club familiar with the PNG products, especially in the cosmetics end. So you know there were just so many fun and diverse experiences. One of my favorite things in Asia is the Singapore Zoo. So if anyone goes over there, they have a great open-air concept zoo. So I was lucky when I was traveling, I tried to go to zoos, go to museums, walk up and down the streets and just really get familiar with the, with the country and the town. Today, you're a trustee on what's
1: called the Cincinnati Southern Railway. It's a private freight, freight line in operation since 1869. Tell us about the impact it has on Cincinnati. So-
0: So, so many people do not know about this. So Cincinnati is the only major city that owns a rail line. And so we own this rail line and our forefathers thought about it back in the 1800s. So it's from Cincinnati to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and it's 337 miles. And so we lease that to a rail company right now. And that brings in about $20 million into the Cincinnati city budget every year. So a lot of people do not know about that. I I wish they had passenger rail also, but right now it's strictly freight. But uh, it's quite an interesting part of our history.
1: All right. You've been a candidate for Cincinnati City Council. And did you have the support of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party? Whose group were you with?
0: Sure. So when I was running for Cincinnati City Council, I was endorsed by the Republican Party as well as the Charter Party. So the charter party in the city of Cincinnati is kind of the good governance group. And so back then, they had not been cross-endorsing, but they decided that that's what they would do. And so they cross-endorsed me. So it's kind of having that support of, of both parties. You know, when you run for a city council election, it's different than if you're running for a state rep. Because as you're running for a state rep, you might have the whole area or the other state reps helping you out. And as far as the Speaker of the House and people like that helping you. When you're on city council running, you're on your own, you raise your money, and you spend the money the way you see fit. Certainly, you have the party's help and support with things, but you're really the candidate and the person running your campaign.
1: Yeah. And before we leave, I forgot to ask you about your role in organizing the Japanese American organization here.
0: Yes, and so there's an organization called the Japan America Society of Greater Cincinnati. And so when I first moved to Cincinnati with Procter and Gamble, we were starting to see a lot more Japanese companies come to the Greater Cincinnati area. And so P&G and some other companies got together and said we need to form this Japan America Society because we want to make sure that the businesses that are coming from Japan and the employees and the families feel comfortable here in Cincinnati. And so I was one of the founding members of that group. And we work very closely with just different Japanese areas. We have Japanese holiday parties. We have American holiday parties. We have cultural programs. We have language programs. And just recently, we were able to welcome the first Japanese Cincinnati Reds player and the first FC Cincinnati Japanese player. So they both started in Cincinnati a year ago. No, well, let's say, what's FCC? Football Club of Cincinnati. <laughs> FCC Cincinnati is the Football Club of Cincinnati. Okay. Soccer.
1: I just want it because most people don't understand what FCC <gasps> and I didn't. <laughs>
0: no, you are so right. But So it's very exciting for our city and state to have a Japanese player, both for the Reds and for our soccer team. Great.
1: All right. Amy, you mentioned the fact that you were born in Minnesota and then moved to Arizona. Tell us why your
0: family moved. Sure. So my family had been in Minnesota since they came over from Norway and Sweden, you know, decades and decades ago. And so we had a very close-knit family in Minneapolis. And my dad had a job transfer opportunity. And I think when we moved to Arizona, I was 11, and we were the first members of our family to move outside of a five-mile radius. Everyone lived very closely, close together. So we moved to Arizona. And it was interesting moving there because in Arizona, um, a lot of my friends didn't have that family infrastructure there because so many people were first-generation Arizonans. So we moved there when I was 11, loved growing up there, really enjoyed it. I have three sisters, so we are very close. It was interesting, too, because when you were talking about the Japan and living there, in the U.S., I have three sisters, and so we all have gender-neutral jobs. You know, my dad would say, take out the trash. We'd all do whatever we had to do. When I was in Japan and I had a brother and a sister, it was very interesting then because our roles were very gender-specific. So just kind of going back. So that's kind of the difference there, too, um, as far as families, but also being from an all-girls family. And, you know, my family growing up was not very political. My mom and dad, they always, like, you respect whoever is the president, and you go out and vote, and you do your research. But it, it wasn't hugely political. It was always about the person. You know, my parents have been great supporters because I never thought I'd get involved in politics. And I tell young women when they start out, you never know what careers you'll have. When I left Procter & Gamble, I thought I've had this great career for 15 years. I'm going to go and be a mom and and do a little bit of work on the side. I didn't know that all of this else would come. That running for city council and being on city council or working for the Department of Defense. That is all icing on the cake. And so I really encourage young women get the education, get the experience, have a passion, and things will fall into into line. You know, I worried when I left to have my children that that would be the end of my career, and it wasn't. I was still able to raise my kids and then go back and continue with my career. Now,
1: it's interesting, isn't it? Because it opens so many different doors, and this is what I try to explain to young women. When that door opens, go into it. Don't say this isn't a good time. Mm-hmm. It's important. Opportunities don't come back. The chance is there. You take it. Tell us at least a little bit about your husband. We kind of forgot about him and this whole <laughs> process. Who is Wally?
0: So my husband, Wally, we have been married. So I have to think about it. My young, my eldest son is 26. So we've been married 28 years. Okay. And we have four kids, Blaine, Abby, Ben, and Cam. And so Wally had two children when we met that were seven and 10. So we have a wonderful, glorious, blended family. And Wally has been so supportive. And I I always let people know when you want to run for office or you're involved in things, you really need to have your spouse's support. I loved being involved when I was on city council, going to all of the community councils. That was just my passion, getting out, because that's what I was supposed to do. But we have 52 neighborhoods and 52 community councils. So one of the great things is Wally was always my partner in these uh, adventures. So if I was going to speak to Sailor Park or if I was going to speak in a different part of town... Wally would go with me because he wanted to get to know the neighborhoods, but then I'd always call it a date night, and then we'd go have dinner somewhere at a restaurant in that neighborhood and get to know the neighborhoods better. So it kind of was a win-win because I could go out there and do what I needed and wanted to do, getting to know the neighborhoods, but then for Wally also, it was a positive for us as a couple. Did Wally work for Procter & Gamble? Wally was with Procter & Gamble. So I was transferred from California. So with Procter & Gamble, I started in California for four years and then was transferred to Cincinnati. And we met my fifth day after I was relocated here at a um, business meeting. Yeah, interesting. Yes. Well,
1: I really appreciate all the time you've taken. What an outstanding career you've had. Can you tell us
0: how people can talk or contact you? Oh, absolutely. So I have Facebook and Twitter. It's at Amy Murray. Feel free to direct message me or you know reply to that. And one thing I do too, Marianne, is I always keep my social media always very positive. You will never find that I'm out there saying negative things. I'm always going to talk about what's great about our city or what's going on, but always kind of in the positive area because I I think that that's healthier for people. As a city council member, that's what I felt I needed to do. And I could also be reached uh, at email. And my email is A Y Murray. A and Murray is M M-U- U R R A Y. So it's A Y M U R R A Y at Mac, okay. And happy to hear from people. And, you know, especially one of the joys I've had is being able to mentor young people that are coming up, whether it's in business, in Japanese business, in politics. You know, it's just great to see people coming and really finding out what their their passion is.
1: Well, you certainly are an inspiration for women because you've tackled things from the age of 15 on, doing things. We really wish you success in whatever endeavor you're going to take on in your future direction. So thank you very much, Amy. Great, thank you so much. And thank you, listeners. Don't hesitate to contact me with your suggestions for future interviews, you can contact me at highheelsandpolitics at gmail.com. I just want to thank our producer, Ryan Kulik. High Heels and Politics with Marianne Christie is produced and engineered by Ion Community. Music by Sharad Sato. Subscribe and listen wherever you find your podcasts.